Well, we have two more weeks of this series, A Tale of Three Kings, and we looked at the King Saul. This is 3,000 years ago these different kings lived. King Saul uh, was almost obedient. He was almost a good king, which means he was absolutely terrible. <laughs> and, and just recognizing in ourselves, God doesn't want us to almost obey. It's kind of like having a liquid that's almost not poisonous. You, you know, it, it uh, is, is not good. So, so we looked at Saul and some of that. And then last week we looked at David and how he was a man after God's own heart in two particular ways. He had two virtues in such huge amounts that it almost seemed wrong. He was incredibly courageous and incredibly merciful. And he had so much mercy, so much courage that he, it, 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 there, there was a, a scene if you remember with him, and he had an opportunity to kill Saul, and honestly, if I lived back then, and if I were one of his 600 men that were hiding in that cave, I would have told David to kill Saul too. But he didn't. He had mercy on him. It's an example that is, is one that we should follow as well, like the example of Jesus Christ. All that stress in the garden before he was crucified, and yet he had the courage to, to go to the cross for us and on the cross having mercy and saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do instead of calling down, you know, legions of angels to, to destroy them and wipe them out. And so, so David's life is, is an incredible example until he lived until about 50 years of age. And I wish we could just end the story of David in 2 Samuel chapter 10 and they lived happily ever after. But the Bible isn't about making believe stories. The Bible is about real people and real events that really happened. And unfortunately, we, we are often not angels and we're not demons. We're somewhere in the middle, and that's true of David. And later in his life, something began to change in David's heart. And, and in fact, I, I would say this is something that David's son wrote. Um, and I wonder if Solomon was thinking of his father when he wrote this down, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but people are tested by their praise. In David's life, um, essentially his trials made him strong in character, strong spiritually, dependent and trusted on the Lord, but then his successes made him weak. In fact, this may explain your life. I was talking to someone just this last week and asking for prayer for her daughter and different struggles going on and physical, you know, worries and, and trials and, and, and you know, wh why didn't God answer this prayer a month ago or last week or whatever? And, but the truth is when we have trials in our life, many times that drives us to God and we depend on Him. And if God answers our prayer and if we get everything we always wanted, then what? then we don't need Him. Then we often go our own way and do our own thing, and we're not, we're not praying like we did when we were in the midst of, of those hard things. And this is true in David's life. When things were difficult, when he was the most wanted man in Israel, being hunted down by the king for that 10-year period of time, he was godly and followed the Lord. But then as success came and as he became king and got used to power and had everything he ever wanted, um, he, he, he grew weak spiritually. And that's what brings us to this story. Second Samuel chapter 11, it says, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israel army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
So David used to go out with the army, but now he's the king. In fact, uh, there's a passage in 2 Samuel chapter 21, which is after this, but it chronologically took place before. Much of the Bible, it's confusing. It's not in chronological order necessarily. It's in a topical order at times, and that's the case here. Um, 2 Samuel 21 says, once again, there was a battle between the Philistines and Israel. David went down with his men to fight against the Philistines, and he became exhausted. And Ishbi Benob, one of the descendants of Rapha, whose bronze spearhead weighed seven and a half pounds and who was armed with a new sword, said he would kill David. So a son of Rapha, that means he was a giant. He was enormous. And it said, verse 17, but Abishai, son of Zariah, came to David's rescue. He struck the Philistine down and killed him. Then David's men swore to him saying, never again will you go out with us to battle. So the lamp of Israel will not be extinguished. So what's happened is David was the most successful general in Israel at 20 years of age, 30 years of age, he becomes king of part of Israel, 37, he becomes king of all of Israel, and at some point he goes out to battle with his men, and, and he's in the front lines, the king, and he gets tired, and this giant comes out and almost kills him, and Abishai like inserts himself and, and, and kills the giant, and they pull David back out of the front lines, and they're like, you are never doing that to us again. And, and David, I think, followed his, his men in what they were saying, and I think he took it to heart. Now, I think the wise thing to do with, you're right, I'm not a 20-something-year-old young buck anymore. I'm almost in my 40s, or I am in my 40s, and I need to maybe have a different position in the battle, not in the front lines. Maybe I'm in the back encouraging the troops and giving speeches and, you know, writing songs and, like, being the morale guy and all of that, and maybe I'm not in the front so much anymore. But what he took away from this is, you're right, I am special. And, and if I were to die, it would be a bigger deal than if one of you were to die. You know, I, because I'm the king, and I'm different, and there's different rules for kings, and he stopped going to battle altogether and, and was staying at home. And uh, I think one of, the, one of the things we can say about David as we watch him later on in his years is he was passive in leading himself. And there's two things that that means. That means that either I let other people lead me and tell me what to do, and I don't take the responsibility. It's okay. It is actually a good thing to serve and be submissive under someone else, but it's bad when you let other people take your responsibilities. I'm going to let someone else take my responsibilities as a father. That's not good. I'm going to let someone else take my responsibilities for David in the military. No, no, he was the commander-in-chief. He needed to take those responsibilities. And so he lets other people take responsibility. That's passive in leading himself. And also, he follows his desires. And, and one of those desires, and we'll see it in this next story, that probably David's biggest character flaw was that he never had self-discipline increasingly as he got older in the area of sex. He, uh, by the time he was 37 years of age, he had seven wives and it says he moved to Jerusalem and then added to that more wives and concubines. And so now in the story, as, as we begin to read it, he's 50 years old and he has probably dozens of women that he has sex with. 
And, and here's something about polygamy in the Old Testament. Of course, you know, they, they married, you know, a lot of men would marry multiple wives. And, you know, in this modern day and age, this is one of those things that we're like, the Bible is so awful. How could God do that? And so some people say, and I was talking to some Mormons a number of years ago, and they were saying, you know, polygamy was was okay at one time or good at one time, and now it's bad, and God just changes. And, and he, here's the deal. It's always been bad. And so you need to understand two things about the Bible and the way it's written. One of them is when the Bible tells stories, there's usually not a moral narrator. It just tells the story. And there isn't some guy that, that pipes in and says, oh, and by the way, he shouldn't have murdered that guy. Like it, the, or, oh, and, and, and when he stole from his mother in, in the book of Judges, you know, he shouldn't have stolen all that silver from his mother. There, there is no moral narrator most of the time in Scripture. It just tells the story, and it assumes you know the books in the legal section of the Bible, right? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and you know what it says there and can apply that. And in the legal section of the Bible, Deuteronomy 17, 17, it says about kings, it says, um, and a king must not make, take many wives or his heart will be led astray. So, so the, the legal section of the Bible says what King David was doing was wrong. And in addition to that, every instance of polygamy in the Bible winds up awful. In fact, the first instance is a guy named Lamech, who's the great-great-great-grandson of murderer Cain. And Lamech's claim to fame is he's the first polygamist in the Bible. He has two wives, and he's also the, the first double murderer in the Bible. He murders two men, and that's what we know. Not a good, you know, stamp of approval on polygamy there. And then as you go through the Bible, every single time it happens, it's disastrous, terrible. Jacob's got four wives, most dysfunctional family in the Bible. You name it, it's in Jacob's family. Mass murder, incest, like it's, it's awful. Why? Because you, you see it coming out of that polygamy. Even Abraham, polygamy is his wife Sarah's idea, and it ends up terrible. It doesn't matter whose idea it is. It's always bad. And so as you read the Bible, you need to see when things happen, when people do things, who's doing that and what happens to them and what's the result. And that's how the, the narrated part and the stories of the Bible teach us. And, and so here's an illustration where David is, is just accumulating women. And that's what kings did back then. It made his reign even stronger because then he had these alliances with others and it made all sorts of sense to the culture and to the, 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 the way of thinking of most people back then. But it was wrong and it led to his downfall. He was passive in leading himself. And the question you need to answer this morning, I need to answer, is where are you not leading yourself well? Is it a desire? A desire for food coming off of Thanksgiving. This was not a good week for me, <laughs> food-wise, right? You kind of give yourself a pass, but, you know, it's Sunday now, it's a new week. I, I need to not be so reckless in what I eat, right? So where are you not leading? Maybe it's alcohol. There are a lot of people, and some in this church, and I don't have anyone in mind right now, but you're an alcoholic, but you're functional, and you're in denial. If you need it, and if you have it every day or almost every day, that's a problem. Are you leading yourself well in your desires, sexually even? 
Are, are you exercising self-control? And then are you leading yourself in your responsibilities? And if you're a husband, there's only one man that can do the responsibilities you have in your marriage, and that's you. You cannot, you cannot give that to anyone else. If you're a wife, same thing. How are, how, if you're a parent, even if you're an older parent, man, we have response. You can't, you can't delegate that to anyone else or even your, your friends and, and at work or even at church here. What are your responsibilities and, and are you leading yourself well or are you just following the crowd? Um, a king must not make many wives, take many wives, or his heart will be led astray. So one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. So this sounds super weird. Like, what's a woman doing having a bath on a roof? Okay? Like, that was actually pretty common. They, they would use a roof as extra square footage. All the roofs were flat. This is a very dry climate. Um, you know, it was not uncommon to take a bath up there because of, of it's kind of fresh air and you didn't have that, um, you know, dampness that, that it would be in the house. And, and also on your roof, you were required in the legal section of the Bible to, to build wall, a wall around the edge of the roof. A lot of that was for safety, but then it also gave you an element of privacy unless you happen to be in an enormous palace up at the highest point in the city and out in the middle of the night or whatever and looking around. And, that's, and, and so what should David have done? I mean, if any one of us, hopefully, you know, had seen this, we'd be like, oh boy, you know, not a time for a night's stroll, you know, but that's not what David did. Why? Because he had never really been self-disciplined in this one area of his life. And increasingly, if he saw a girl that he wanted, take her. You know, in a couple chapters from now, we see a ten concubines, at least nine wives. There's a, ten wives. David sent someone to find out about her, and the man said, I don't know who this man is, but his response is super wise. He says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he's just some guy. So he's not going to tell the king what to do, but his response tells the king what to do. David, she's married. Okay, and not only is she married, but she's the daughter of Eliam. Who's Eliam? Well, you find out who who would live right next to the king's palace. Think about this: the king's men, yeah, officials, maybe his generals, his advisors, and things like that, and their family. Right, they're they're going to be right next to where the action is near the near, near court, and so Eliam is the son of Ahithophel who is David's wisest counselor. And he comes in later in the story because he doesn't take too kindly to his granddaughter being taken into a harem and his grandson being murdered. Like, that doesn't go over well with Ahithophel, and he goes in league with one of David's enemies to try to kill David, overthrow the kingdom. And so this person is saying, the daughter of Eliam, don't, like, and then the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Uriah was one of David's 40 most powerful warriors, and he was off fighting David's battle right then. And uh, he doesn't listen. And then David sent messengers to get her, and she came to him, and he slept with her. 
Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness, which means she was at the time of the month where she was most likely to get pregnant. And then she went back home. Interesting, in this whole story, this is very anti-Middle East. This is very anti-culture of the ancient world. A lot of times the woman is blamed, right? Things like this happen. He's the king. You know, it was her fault. What was it? Nowhere in the story is Bathsheba ever blamed for everything. 100% of the blame goes on David, which makes us even wonder if, if she was even a willing participant in this. Uh, because the king summons you, and certainly she didn't scream, but what good would that have done? And, and maybe shock, like this is the king. Maybe he was her hero, right? She grew up with all these stories about King David, how he defeated the giant and the lion and the bear and all these military victories and her husband's out in the, you know, part of the men and, and in, his, in his army and, and what a great, and now what? What's going on? In fact, I think when he summoned her, you know what my thought would have been if I was Bathsheba? Uriah is dead. Why else would the king call me to? And so she comes with fear like, well, why are you calling me here? So Uriah okay? Oh, yeah, 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 he's fine. Here, have some wine. Have something to eat. What? What's going on? The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. And... Um, goes down from there. He decides, concocts this plan to cover himself. He's like, well, so Uriah's at the battlefield. He's going to know it's not his, so I'll bring him home. So he sends a messenger. Uriah comes home, and he says, Uriah, how's the battle going? He gives a report and an update, and he says, great. Hey, go home to your wife. Enjoy yourself. Like, have a great night. You know, you can go back. And, And so Uriah leaves the palace and sleeps on the doorstep of the palace out of solidarity for his own men that are sleeping out in the middle of the field. And David confronts him the next day. How come you didn't go home? I told you to go home. And he says, how could I go home? My men are out there in the field. What a slap in David's face. Not meaning to. You know, he's like, how could I enjoy myself when my men are risking their lives out there on the battlefield and sleeping under the stars? He's like, in solidarity to them, I will not go home until the battle's over. So David gets him drunk tries to get him to go home again, still doesn't work. And so then David knows, this is such a trustworthy, reliable, upright man. I know he's not going to read a message I send by his hand. And so he sends a message with Uriah that says to Joab, Joab is the commander of David's forces, not a stranger to revenge or bloodshed, not a good guy. Um, And he sends a message to Joab saying, hey, when Uriah, I want him to be on the front lines in in the hardest thickest part of the battle, and I want you to give a signal to everyone around him when the battle is at its worst to withdraw so that he's killed. And Joab, and and he sends this message in Uriah's hand, knowing that Uriah is such a trustworthy, upright individual, he won't look at it. Uriah gives it to Joab, Joab looks at it, thinks, stinks to be you, dude, and he makes it happen, and Uriah is killed. And so then the word comes back, Uriah died in battle, And uh, David, the loving, wonderful king that he is, takes this, you know, soldier's widow into his home and uh, marries her. What, what What a great guy. But he's not. And God knows this happened, and God sends Nathan the prophet to confront David and Nathan comes. And in that time period, um, the king was kind of like the Supreme Court. 
And if you had a, a court case locally that you didn't think justice was done or maybe nobody was, was on your side, you could go to the king and you could present your case to the king and the king could override anything and just and give justice out. And so Nathan is a prophet. He travels around Israel and, and he comes to David and he says, you know, I travel around Israel and, and let me tell you something that happened recently. There was these two men, a rich man and a poor man. And the, the poor man, he just had one lamb and, and it was like a pet. He slept with it. He loved that lamb. And the rich man, he had like flocks and herds and lots of, lots of sheep. And, and so a guest comes to the rich man's house, and the, and the rich man, he, he needs to feed his guest. So he steals the poor man's lamb, kills it, and feeds it to his guest. David, what should be done? David was a shepherd. He probably had a soft spot for maybe one of his sheep when he was little and thought... And he just gets livid. And this is his response. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. And he must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. One of the mic drop moments of Old Testament. And David knows. And, and David repents. A lot of kings in that situation would have said, how dare you, and killed the messenger or, or imprisoned him or, or, or whatever. But David realizes he's caught, and, and he repents, and, he's, and, he's, and he, he doesn't eat, and he prays, and he cries out to God. But, but David pronounces his own judgment. Uh, four of his children are going to die because he killed Uriah. And, and more than four, actually, of his concubines are, are going to be taken by another man because he took another man's wife. And, and so, so that's, when all this comes out, for the next nine, for the rest of David's life, he is a shell of his former self. He, he never really stands up. You don't ever see that courage that, that he had in the beginning. And, um, and I think it's because not only did he not lead himself, but, it, but, but because of his shame, he then failed to lead others. You know, if you have unrepentant sin in your life, if you are sinning and doing something wrong against God, it, it stops you from helping others who are struggling with sin. Because you're going to do one of two things. Number one, you're going to be a hypocrite by dealing with someone else's sin when you haven't dealt with your own. Or you're going to say, how could I deal with someone else's sin and help someone else because of my own sin so I'm going to become passive and not do anything? And, and that's essentially what David does. And unfortunately, it's not because he, does, he has unrepentant sin. He repents of his sin. He's forgiven by God. The problem is he, he doesn't act like he's forgiven. He, he continues to live with his shame. Shame is, is what we feel when other people find out about our sin. And so other people found out about David's sin, and instead of thinking about what God, before God he was innocent, before God he, he, was, he was right because he was forgiven. And instead of thinking about where he stood before God, he thought about where he stood before people. And before people, David 
You know, you know what he did with Bathsheba. You know what happened with Uriah. And so there's a story, and I don't want to read any of it because it's so hideous. One of David's sons, Amnon, rapes his half-sister. And, and after that whole horrendous thing, it says her brother Absalom, this is Tamar who was raped, her full-blooded brother Absalom said to her, has Am that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't this, take this thing to heart. And what he means by that, and you'll see as the story progresses, is don't worry, sister. I'll make sure he pays. You come live with me. I'll protect you. Your father couldn't protect you, David. And he's not doing anything, but I will. And, and so what does David do? When King David heard all this, he was furious. Yeah. And then what did he do? Nothing. Nothing. Again, you go to the legal section of the Bible, and Amnon should have been executed, maybe in the very least exiled from the country, never to return. Amnon was the heir to the throne. He's not just a prince. He's going to be the king and David does nothing? If Amnon does this when he's a prince, what is he going to do when he's a king? And David does nothing. Why? And I think the why is, how can I punish Amnon? I did the same thing to Bathsheba, and I killed her husband to cover it up. How, how, how could I? What, what position would I be in to judge? And here's what we need to understand. Uh, None of us are perfect. But, but what David shows Amnon here by not doing anything is not mercy. We think it's mercy. It's not mercy. It's, if anything, it's, it's judgment on him. He's passively, his passivity bled into his leadership of others. So, so he doesn't deal with sin that other people have. Um, we think that that's a bad thing to, to confront other people who, who are in sin, but it actually is a good thing. I want to get, need to move on. His shame led him to overlook sin. To leave someone in their sin is not mercy, it's indifference and judgment. So I've said this before, I thought this is really mind-opening to me. The opposite of, of, of love is not necessarily hate. It is one of the opposites of love, but I think there is an opposite even more contrary to love. And what is it? Indifference. Right? Hate, you at least care about the person. Negative. <laughs> but, but with indifference, you don't care at all. And, and so, what David, David doesn't deal with other people's sins. Here's, here's two instances in which you won't deal with other people's sins. You wouldn't, don't, or shouldn't deal with other people's sins if you don't care about them at all. All right, so if my kids are playing baseball out on Route 29 or out on 706 out there, and I don't care about them, I'm not going to tell them to stop, right? If anybody's playing baseball on Route 706, right? If I don't care, I'm like, not my monkey, not my circus, right? If, if I don't care about them, I'm not going to deal with it at all. But if I have any love whatsoever for them as human beings, I'm going to deal with sin, right? Sin is, is 
doing things that are going to harm you or others. They're doing things that are wrong. It is wrong to play in the street. <laughs> it's dangerous. It's foolish. And, and so to, to say, well, you know what? I don't want to be judgmental. I'll let them just play baseball in the street. That, 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 that is not being merciful. I'm going to show them mercy and not tell them they shouldn't play baseball. In the, that's not mercy. That's indifference, maybe even hatred. Okay, and so, so we need to deal even with other people's sins, right? The, the, the question that Cain was asked by God after he killed Abel, he said, am I my brother's keeper? Am I, do I have a responsibility toward my brother was his question to God. What's the answer? Absolutely you are. You do have a responsibility toward other people around you. So, so the other person you shouldn't confront is a fool. So a fool, Jesus says, if you confront them in the, about their sin and you tell them the truth, they're like a pig that will trample those pearls of truth under their feet or, or, and, and then they'll turn and attack you. And so if you believe someone's a fool, you don't confront them either. In fact, I've, I've, when I've confronted some people, sometimes I've said this, there's two reasons why I'm confronting you. Number one, because I care about you. If I didn't care about you, I wouldn't talk to you. I'd be like, go blow up your own life. I'm out, right? So I care about you. The other reason I'm confronting you is because I don't think you're a fool. Because if I thought you were a fool, I wouldn't bother. I just let you, you know, whatever. He's a fool. I mean, my, my words are not going to change a thing in that person's life. And this is very countercultural. We live in a culture where people say, hey, just, you know, you do you, do whatever you want, whatever. But, but the truth is, that is, is a, a way of judging others. In fact, Romans 1, you read Romans 1, what is God's most severe judgment on people? He says, they, they, even though they knew God, they weren't thankful of God, they didn't worship God, they didn't recognize God, and so what was God's judgment? He gave them over. He let them do what they want. He took his hands off and said, go ahead. And so then they made idols and they, they did all these different, and, and what did he do? Judge, he just said, go ahead, make your idols. Make up your own gods and do it, do it. You make up what they say and do that. And, and love confronts others who are struggling with sin. We do this as parents, right? If, if you do not ever discipline your children, the Bible says in Proverbs, you hate them. We need to deal with issues that are children. If you're at work and you are in a, in a leadership role, you're a manager, you're the boss, and you do not deal with those under you. If you're a coworker and you see a coworker who's not a fool, some of you have coworkers who are fools. There's no, you, nothing you can do about that because a fool is someone who, who knows what's right and wrong and they just don't care. And you just leave a fool to their folly because you'll just get in, you'll just, it'll just hurt you. But if they're not a fool and you see a coworker going down a wrong path, say, hey, listen, this is the third time you showed up late and I know you're lying on your time card. Dude, this is not good. Like, no, I'm not going to squeal on you, but I'm telling you, like, I'm warning you, this is, you can do this, don't, or whatever it is, or you lied, or you, you're, you're, you're getting involved with this other person, and I'm telling you, that girl is no good, or that guy is no good, and I'm just warning you, this is, you know, and David, 
he basically just became passive because he says, who am I? And I know we could all do that, right? There's things in my life that I could, I could share with you and be like, who am I to confront anyone because of what I've done? But we can't live by our shame. We need to live in our forgiveness that we have through Jesus Christ. And that means talking to other people. Um, what sin are you not dealing with? And this is not talking about your sin. This is talking about what sin that someone else has in your circle of influence that you're not dealing with. This is not talking about complete strangers on the internet, okay? <laughs> that, that this is talking about people in your life. Don't, don't be like David who just kind of quit on his responsibilities um, as he went. Um, his shame kept him from moving forward. What are you not facing that you need to do as well? Um, you know, what, what, what would you do? What, what does God want you to do actively? So often we're passive. And so actively in your home, what does God want you to do? Um, maybe you got a child that's kind of estranged from you, doesn't live at home, is on their own, and there's this, you don't wait for that child to reach out to you. You reach out to them. Maybe you're the child, and, you're, and your father, your mother is like, like you, don't, you don't talk to them anymore. You know, write a letter and make it just all positive. Don't air all your grievances that have happened, but, but, but take initiative to, to deal with the brokenness and the broken relationships around you. And, and maybe it's in this church. Maybe God doesn't want you to be passive at Bridgewater, and he wants you to step up and do something. And maybe you're watching online, and he wants you to join an online small group. Or maybe you're watching online, he wants you here in the building, because you could be. Or maybe you're here today, and you know what? We need a fourth and fifth grade Sunday school teacher, first service Sunday school, USS Bridgewater. You know what that is. Kids ministry, fourth and fifth grade. Maybe God wants you to invest in, in, in kids and in their lives. You know, we preschool as well. We could use a helper, I think, and I think for a, and a rotation to be one of the teachers for, for preschool, three and two, three, four, five-year-olds. Maybe it's something else. You know, I, I was at the, the Monday, the last Monday manly meal. I encouraged the guys, hey, let's keep doing this. Get, get the guys at your table and say, let's, let's, let's continue to meet together and have significant spiritual conversations about what's going on in our lives. And afterward, I went up to a man and I said, hey, would you, I, I want you to come to a small group that I'm starting. Would you be willing to come? And he said, when is it? Monday night. And he said, no, I, I can't. I'm like, well, why? Because there's three other guys at my table and we're going to meet together on Monday nights. And I was like, Yes. That's, that's taking initiative. That's not being passive. And so many men and women here, some of you here, you are being passive. You're being passive in your home. You're passive in your church. You're passive at work. You're, you're, you're passive with your friends. And, and that's what David fell into. And he had such a, an incredible impact on his nation. And then he started becoming passive and it just plummeted. And the last 20 years of his life were awful. Watching four of his children, three of them die violently 
because of what they did, but because he wasn't there. Jump in. Don't, don't hold back. Do what God is calling you to do. And if you're not sure, try it anyways. A lot of times we think, well, if I don't try and don't fail, at least I didn't fail. No. You don't try, you've already failed. At least try. Do, do something. And, and don't be passive. Heavenly Father, I just, uh, I just thank you for... I thank you that you didn't just wait up in heaven for us to come to you because we never would. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks God. And so, Lord, I just thank you that you set the example, that you took the initiative, that you came to earth and sought us out. And I just ask that we would do that, Lord, that we would seek others out to have spiritual conversations, that we would have those hard conversations, maybe with family or at work or with friends. And we don't want to have those hard conversations, but help us to realize that that, uh, love isn't indifferent. Love isn't passive. Love doesn't stand aside while someone else's life slowly leaks away or burns down. Um, Love is courageous. Love takes risks. God, help us to be a risk-taking church, to be risk-taking people, to be active and not passive. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.